Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dan Goleman. Dan is an internationally known psychologist and science journalist. He's the author of the book, Emotional Intelligence, a book that has more than 5 million copies in print worldwide in 40 languages and recently has been released as a special 25th anniversary edition. And Dan has written a new introduction to this 25th anniversary edition. Dan is also a faculty member of Sounds True's new Inner MBA program, which is a nine-month immersion training program on developing the inner skills that support people to manage and lead conscious businesses and turn business into being a force for good. You can learn more about the Inner MBA program at innermbaprogram.com. Dan Goldman has a supremely precise mind and a warm heart, and he's such a powerful force when it comes to educating people on the subtleties of developing greater emotional intelligence. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Goldman. To begin with, Dan, congratulations on the 25th anniversary edition of Emotional Intelligence. What a milestone. Congratulations. Oh, that's kind of you, Tammy. Yeah, I I wrote a new intro updating uh, my thinking on it because it's changed quite a bit in 25 years. And uh, people who only read the first book and haven't followed my thinking or a little bit behind the curve. So I'm, I'm trying to bring everybody up to speed. Good. Well, later on in our conversation, we'll have to talk about what the updates are sure. that you have in the new edition. But to start, I want to start with some real basics, if that's mm. okay. Real basics. I want to okay. learn from the science journalist uh-huh. writer himself. He wrote the book on emotional intelligence. So here we go. What are emotions? Emotions themselves, what are they? Emotions are the brain's way of making us pay attention to and act quickly on something that the brain's radar for threat thinks is extremely important. Or the brain's circuitry for motivation thinks is extremely important. So our worst emotions, the ones that... uh, make us do things we might regret later, like anger or panic, 
uh, are signs that the brain's radar for threat, which is called the amygdala, has detected something that it thinks is um, going to harm us in some way. This design worked very well when the brain was being designed by nature in human prehistory when we lived on the savanna and the jungle. And it really sucks now that we live in a complex social uh, reality. So we have this biological reaction, the fight or flight response, uh, which was worked really well, presumably, in early human history. But today it gives us this cascade of hormones that are meant to prepare us to run uh, or fight uh, in response to something like, he's not treating me fairly. And so it's, it's a response which is unfortunately um, out of proportion to the reality that we face today. That's on the downside. The upside is, you know, the things that make us feel really good, that make us um, keep going toward our goals, the things we really want, or the people we love, or uh, all of the positive emotions come from the same circuitry. And, and emotions uh, are, as I said, the, the way the central nervous system gets us to do something it thinks matters. Okay, so now at one point you said the brain and then the central nervous system right. is giving us this these messages. And I just want sure. to be clear because some people talk about emotions as starting in the body physiologically, as if it could be distributed throughout, like your gut could be sending a message. And I'm just curious what you think about our entire physiology as potentially being the source of emotional responses, or is it really more the brain? Yeah, no, well... I think it's a false dichotomy. The brain is part of the body and emotions are embodied. They're spread throughout the body. So you may know that you're anxious from uh, that funny feeling in your stomach. You may notice that you're angry because your heart rate is increased. Uh, and I, I don't know that there's a satisfactory answer to where does it begin in the brain or the body because I think it begins both simultaneously. Uh, it's interesting they're discovering that we don't have a thought which doesn't have an emotional valence. We like it or don't like it. That's automatic. It happens unconsciously. The, if you think of something, a car, uh, your partner, whatever it is, you, the brain and body attach an emotional positivity or negativity to that, and that just helps guide us through life happens automatically. And I think the body is involved as the central nervous system, which the brain is part of, is diffused throughout the body. So I don't know where it starts, but I know it's everywhere. Okay. Now this may also uh, seem to you like splitting hairs or maybe mm -hmm. is even also a false dichotomy, but there's a discussion about which comes first, thoughts or emotions. And you're saying thoughts have this emotional valence do we even know what an emotion is without thought? Like, what's your view of this relationship between thoughts and emotions? Well, uh, you know, micro studies uh, done in cognitive science of a thought arising, an emotion arising, I find that this valence that I talked about, the stamping of a thought with the positivity or negativity, is, is basically simultaneous. The thought, the feeling arises with the thought. Uh, there may be a difference in uh, 
uh, microseconds, thousands of a second, but I don't think there's a subjective difference at all. So um, I, I'm not going to take a position that thought is prior to feeling or feeling is prior to thought. Okay. Now, have you heard this idea that when a feeling comes, it lasts 90 seconds unless we invest in it in some way? Like we have to cooperate with it, think about it, keep it going, or it will appear and disappear in a 90 second arc. And I'm wondering if you've heard this, if you think this is just like pop shenanigans or if there's validity to this. Who says that? Uh, I've been hearing a lot of people quote it. I don't know the uh -huh. original source. Yes. Uh, I think that um, emotions come in bursts that last varying time periods. I, I, 90 seconds sounds a little uh, mythic or fallacious to me, like the so-called 10,000 uh, times rule for mastering a, uh, an ability. That's also fiction. It's a misinterpretation of the data, uh, but it does land. I think the basic principle that the more we think about it, the more we prime it, the longer it lasts. That's definitely true. I mean, think about something that's really upsetting in your life. She said that thing to me, or he didn't answer that email. And you get, and for some reason that triggers a big emotion. You can have that feeling tomorrow as strongly as today. You can have it at two in the morning uh, if you keep ruminating on it. And rumination is simply thinking about something that upsets us over and over and over again. And rumination never helps. There's two kinds of worry, constructive worry and destructive worry. Constructive worry is when you think about something that's upsetting you and you think of something you can do to change the situation for the better, then you stop thinking about it. That's constructive. Destructive is you loop it over and over and you just can't think about it. The Dalai Lama said something very wonderful. He said, there's a Tibetan saying, if you have a big problem and you can do something about it, why worry? If you have a big problem, you can't do something about it, why worry? What he's doing is separating our emotional reaction from the facts of the situation. Now, uh, in my original question to you about what are emotions, you talked about how our brain and central nervous system mm. pervading our whole body is giving us information. And right. some people look at different emotions as carrying with them different messages. Mm. So, for example, sadness mm. could carry with it a message that there's something you need to let go of in your mm. life. That mm. kind of. What do you think about that? Uh, there's a wonderful scientist of emotions named Paul Ekman who has studied uh, what he, he believes are the six universal emotions. And he sees each of them as arising from a central premise or dilemma or situation. So anger, for example, is because uh, something you want is thwarted in some way. Sadness is obviously because of a loss. Or, and so uh, I think in that sense, emotions have fundamental messages. I think it becomes very individual when you start to interpret the meaning of an emotion. So uh, I, I'm a little wary of 
general principles, this emotion always means that. It, I think it may mean that to a lot of people very often. I'm not sure it always means that. Uh, emotions are quite contextual, in other words. Okay. And now here's a question that's very important to me, actually, oh. Dan. Uh, it's oh. important to me personally. Here we go. Okay. There are some people who talk about certain emotions as being inherently negative or even to use a word, and I know it's a word mm -hmm. that you used with your book on the Dalai Lama, with the Dalai Lama on certain kinds of emotions, if we work with them in a certain way, destructive emotions. So there are some people say, like, this emotion, that's a, that's a negative emotion. And then these emotions over here, these are positive emotions and this distinction between negative and positive emotions. And the reason I said this is important to me is it seems to me that it's there's not enough nuance if we just think about emotions as these are negative and these are positive. Because sometimes, for example, take an emotion like anger, and I realize I'm putting a lot out here, but I, I know you're tracking with me. If you have an emotion like anger, there can be some really good positive uses and needs. And yes, please, that's a reason to be angry. So anger isn't itself a negative emotion, it's how we work with anger. So how do you see this view of their negative and positive emotions? Do you not see it that way? I don't see it that way. Uh, I think every emotion has its purpose, has its uses, uh, and emotions become destructive. I think you're referring obliquely to my book, Destructive Emotions, which is about a dialogue between emotion researchers and the Dalai Lama. He chose the word destructive. I, I kept questioning, do you really mean destructive? He said, yeah, I want to talk about destructive emotions. What he meant was, when do emotions become destructive? And there were two standards. The Western psychological standard was an emotion becomes destructive when it leads us to harm ourselves or someone else. That makes sense. The uh, higher threshold the Dalai Lama posited was that emotions become destructive when they disturb our inner equilibrium or distort our perception. Uh, that's a higher bar. Uh, but nobody said emotions have no use. Everyone agreed that they're part of the human repertoire. It's part of the human condition, and they're there for a reason. Let's talk about disturb our inner equilibrium. Oh. It takes a lot of inner equilibrium to be with strong emotions that are serving a purpose and not get thrown off as a result. That takes a lot of inner equilibrium. Uh, I think this may be why they emphasize doing a lot of practice in meditative traditions, because what you're doing is rewiring your brain in meditation practice. And you uh, ideally or aspirationally would get to a point where you can keep your equilibrium no matter what emotion floats through and no matter how strong that emotion is. I think it takes a lot of work to get there. Yeah, that makes sense. And that definition of when does an emotion become destructive, that's very, very, very helpful, Dan. Thank you. Okay, one other question in general about yes. emotions. Mm. All kinds of things happen in our lives that provoke us, evoke emotions. What about intentionally generating emotional states for some purpose, like intentionally generating feelings of gratitude or joy. What do you think about that? Sounds good to me, but you know, uh, the people who are best at generating emotions are actors. 
that is the singular skill of a, a good actor, being able to generate a feeling so strongly that you emanate it. You know, you can act cry real tears. You can. The other group that generates emotions um, don't generate gratitude or awe. These are bill collectors. Bill collectors intentionally work themselves up so they can be angry on their next call. And that serves them in that limited context. Like, I, you know, I'm really going to dun this person that owes a lot of money. Uh, and that's also generating an emotion voluntarily. I think generating gratitude uh, is very, it's quite positive because we know from lots of research that positive emotions, gratitude, feeling okay, feeling secure, feeling content, feeling positive, feeling upbeat is good for your health, both mental health and physical health. There's lots and lots of data that shows that. And uh, being able to generate positive emotions, which many people can't, by the way, but learning how to do it is a great skill. You know, uh, my friend Richie Davidson says, well-being is a skill. You can learn it. And that's one of the tools of that skill. Now, you brought up the actors and the actresses who, you know, their gift is being able to generate emotions in character on demand. What was your point about that? Was your point to let us know that just because you can do that doesn't doesn't really mean anything about your spiritual journey as a person? It's just... Uh, uh, no, I'm, can do. I'm simply pointing out that uh, being able to generate one emotion or another is a craft. I wouldn't say it's a gift. Some people may be gifted, but it's learnable. Uh, and because it's learnable, you can learn it as a bill collector does for what I see as a negative reason or in a positive way. The learning gratitude, for example, or loving kindness is another positive set of emotions that you can learn to master. And those are good for you and for your relationships. Okay. You mentioned your work with Richie Davidson and together you wrote a book called Altered Traits. Science reveals how meditation changes your mind, brain, and body. What do we know about the connection for people who have a meditation practice? I've developed a meditation practice. How does that connect to their EQ, to their emotional intelligence? Is there a direct connection? Uh, there's a strong connection. And uh, it's because emotional intelligence has four parts. There's self-awareness, and meditation definitely improves self-awareness. There's self-management, and I think... Uh, being aware of what you're feeling is a first step in handling a negative feeling or generating positive feelings, as we were just saying. Uh, then there's empathy, tuning into other people's emotions. And I think uh, the data that we reviewed suggests that loving kindness practices improve empathy. They also improve actual generosity. They make you kinder. Uh, and the fourth part of emotional intelligence is social skill or relationship. So I think it supports every part of emotional intelligence meditation does and can you explain how it does that what's actually happening for the meditator uh, i could yes and i can because we looked at um you know <laughs> richie and i were graduate students together at harvard a long time ago and each of us wanted to do our dissertation research on meditation and uh, our faculty thought that was a really stupid idea at the time because nobody had done it. There were like 
three published articles in academic journals on the topic. When we went back and reviewed it for the book, they're like 6,000. Amazing. There's just abundant research. And it shows in detail what happens in the brain, for example. So if you practice, say, mindfulness of the breath, it turns out that that enriches connectivity and circuitry in the brain that helps you calm down. The more you do it, the better the benefit. There's a dose-response relationship. So people who do it a lot, like long-term meditators, get triggered less often in a negative way. If they do get triggered, uh, then they have a less strong negative response and they recover more quickly. The definition of resilience is how quickly you recover from being upset. Uh, and it turns out the same circuitry helps you focus. It improves your concentration. And we see this in, in the data pretty much from the outset. Uh, people get better, they get calmer, and they are better able to focus on what's important to them. So those are two benefits. And, and that is uh, directly a, uh, in the emotional intelligence model, it would be self-management. And then if you do a loving kindness kind of meditation, uh, it turns out that it enhances empathy and it makes you uh, kinder in your relationships. And all of that from emotional intelligence point of view makes you more likable. One of the interesting things I found in, in, around the world, I asked people, tell me about the best boss you ever had and tell me about the boss you hated the most in one word. And the, the collection of words for the best boss, the boss people love, is emotional intelligence. <laughs> Different qualities of emotional intelligence. And the boss people hate, it's a lack of that. And I, so I think it helps you uh, in many, many ways. And meditation feeds into that. You can also not use meditation. You can enhance different skills of emotional intelligence directly. But I think meditation is like a general workout for social skill, for human skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Now, the title of the book, Altered Traits, mm. somehow we move from having an altered state. So right. I'm sitting on the cushion and my mind right. is as big as the sky Wonderful, but it's not necessarily an altered trait if when I'm not on the cushion and someone at work says, I'd like to give you some feedback, Tammy. Yeah. And you know, I like slam down on the table and go, What? You know, <laughs> I haven't I haven't yet translated sure. this into a trait. Right. And you mentioned that it's sensitive to dosage, how much we right. meditate. Right. How much do we have to meditate so that this state that I have when I'm meditating actually starts to permeate my life, especially when I'm challenged, under stress, right. in conflict? Right. Um, I Thank you for pointing out the difference between a state, which is temporary, and a trait. But let me clarify something. You don't necessarily feel great during a meditation session. But that's very similar to not feeling great when you're working out. Uh, when you do a physical workout in a gym, you're strengthening your muscles. When you do a mental workout in the inner gym of meditation, you're strengthening neural circuitry. And uh, many people who begin meditation say, I can't do this. My mind is going nuts, which just means you have more self-awareness. You're, you're actually noticing how the mind actually is all the time. And it's a good sign that you think that, not a bad sign, but it doesn't necessarily feel good. 
the more you meditate, the easier it may be to get into a feel-good state. But if you ask the pros, the, the people from spiritual traditions, what's the mark of success or progress in meditation, they usually will not tell you it's a particular state. They'll tell you it's how you act in the world. That's the trait. So the trait is who you become when you're not doing the meditation. And the data there, uh, it seems to be very uh, encouraging about the fact that the kind of rehearsal you're doing during the meditation uh, pays off after the meditation. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a question about comparing meditation practice to working out in a gym. Of course, I've heard that mm -hmm. analogy made mm -hmm. many, many times. And I get that there's a lot of validity in it as a comparison. It makes sense. But here's my question. Mm -hmm. If I stopped physically exercising or working out, mm. I can tell you mm -hmm. I would be you know, I, I don't know if I'd be able to get up the stairs in five right. years or 10 years. Things would be bad. The level of flabbiness, we mm. don't even want to think about it. But I don't know if that's the same when it comes to meditation, because if you stop, but you've done it a lot, it seems like there's some way that you translate into becoming more of a natural meditator in your life. Is that true or is that Tammy Baloney? I think it may become true at a certain point, but a rather advanced point. I think that more generally, uh, if you stop meditating, and this I know from personal experience, you start regressing. And uh, you, you may be able to pick it up more quickly. We found in uh, strong hints that you make more progress on a retreat than you do during a daily practice, that daily practice is good for maintaining what you've done but you'll make more progress generally if you do a, a more intensive stint of it uh, as on a retreat. So uh, I think that your analogy works both ways, for better and for worse. Okay. Now, you mentioned that the model that you developed for emotional intelligence has evolved over the past oh, yeah. 25 years. Right. And now we have the new edition of the book <laughs> right. with a new introduction. Sure. What are the biggest ways that it changed from when you developed the model? And also another question I'm curious about is how did you develop this model? Dan? Oh. Like how did you create sure. the original grid with these four domains? Right. Well, I have to, uh, first of all, credit a friend of mine, Peter Salovey, with the phrase emotional intelligence. He wrote an article in 1990 in a very obscure journal, doesn't exist anymore, uh, called Emotional Intelligence. Then I was uh, doing um, science journalism at the New York Times. My job was to read these obscure journals and see what was new and interesting. I thought, wow, that is great. It's so counterintuitive to put emotions with intelligence. It was then. Uh, and then I used that framework to write uh, for the book I was writing anyway, which was on the, basically on emotions in the brain and an argument for teaching kids in school, this skill set. And uh, the four by four emerged as I thought more deeply about it. I kind of went back to my psychology uh, background. And uh, the original model had five parts. There was self-awareness. But then there was motivation and emotional management. And I realized that one was the upside and one was the downside, and I should put them together. So the, the five parts became four. 
the domains of self-awareness, self-management, empathy, and social skill. And within those four domains, this is something that I didn't write about in emotional intelligence because it came later. I did work with my old uh, graduate school friend, Richard Boyatzis, who's now at Case Western Reserve. And we looked in, in the business setting at work that was being done by many, many companies and organizations on their star performers. What were the competencies or abilities you saw in stars that you didn't see in average performers? And we realized that a very large set of those had to do with emotional intelligence and that each one of those nested within a particular set of the four parts, like uh, being able to manage your emotions or being able to work toward your goals or being able to be adaptable or to stay positive. That's all part of self-management. So those are competencies in my model now within self-management. And there are 12 competencies. We have a, an assessment tool called the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. It's a 360 for for developing further strengths. You take it before you, often used by coaches, for example, you take it before you start and you take it after to see how you're doing. 360 means you have people who know you well and whose opinions you value rate you anonymously so they can be very honest. And you get that feedback and you get it to see how where you need to work. And then after you do the work, how far you've come, you do it again. And uh, the if you want to know about the 12 competencies of emotional intelligence, I recommend the, the primers on each called Building Blocks of Emotional Intelligence. It's from uh, keystepmedia.com, one word, keystepmedia, and explains in more detail what each competence is and why it matters. Again, that's keystepmedia.com exactly. for these uh primers on each of the competencies. Now, if I do this inventory mm. and I discover that I'm a little weak here mm. and I'm a little stronger there, what do I do with that information? Is the goal to be raise all my scores so that I yeah, um, yeah. am high across the board? No, it turns out said that- Said the overachiever. <laughs> it turns out the star performers are stars in their own way, each of them. And they may have four strengths, but there are different four strengths for different people. Uh, typically, it's at least one uh, from each of the four domains. Uh, if you're very, uh, so you, you, Tammy, may be a goal-oriented perfectionist, which gets you uh, successful in whatever domain. If you were a pianist, you'd be a very good pianist because you would uh, look at your own performance and see what you need to improve. Perfectionists have an ongoing learning curve. The difficulty with perfectionists is if they become the head of something, they may view other people through the lens of perfectionism, which looks at what people do wrong, not what they do right. Now, I'm not saying this is true of you, but it's, it's a, a common problem we see in the workplace with leaders with that pattern. They were very good as individual contributors. That's why they became a team leader or, or whatever. But once they lead, they don't realize that they need to coach. They, you need to see that people can improve. I'm going to circle back to your question here. Uh, and um, the best leaders understand that part of their leadership is not just inspiring and guiding and motivating, but also helping people get better at what they're doing. Uh, not dismissing them as, as, you know, you're not good at that. So 
to answer your question, across those 12 competencies, you get a profile. It's like a physical. You know, your glyceride, triglycerides are high, your good cholesterol is low, low, you know, you get all of these readouts. Same thing. You get rated on, uh, as higher or lower medium or wherever you are on each of those 12 competencies. And then you, hopefully with a coach or someone independent that will help you get better, you look at that and you decide where you want to work. And you don't try to like get all 12 to the top. I don't know anyone who has all 12 to the top. You want to think about what will help you in your situation with your challenges uh, do better and work on that with a coach and one at a time. Don't try to take them all on. It's very helpful. It's clear. Thank you. Uh Now, I want to dig in a little bit into each one of the domains and pull out some aspects of what it would take to be competent in one of these competencies and and ask you some questions about it. Just get into some of the details. So in self-awareness, part of it is that we could develop the competency of being self-confident. And I wanted to understand more about self-confidence because you're part of the inner MBA, the program Mm -hmm. that you're one of the Mm -hmm. presenters in. I've been um, having some monthly mentoring sessions Mm. with some of the members of Mm. the inner MBA asking all kinds of questions. And one of the questions I got very early on is I want to develop my self-confidence. Seems like you feel, you seem confident. How do you do it? How do I do it? I need to be speak up more in meetings. Mm -hmm. How do I do this? And I'm curious how you would respond to people who are trying to develop more self-confidence. Well, uh, I think, the self-confidence I would want them to develop is realistic self-confidence. There's a kind of bullshit self-confidence, like every kid is the most wonderful kid in the world. You know, this uh, the self-esteem movement was a little overboard that way. Uh, really, and kids know it, by the way. Uh, so if I'm feeling shy and you say, you're the best performer, the kid knows. That, that's not true. I'm, I'm scared when I go on stage. So you want people to do a realistic self-assessment. This is where self-awareness comes in. Where am I? What are my strengths? And what could I get better at? And what can I not get better at, for example? So self-confidence is specific to a strength, a realistic self-confidence. And strengths can be uh, improved on very often. For example, if you're uh, if you have social anxiety, social anxiety can be overcome. Social anxiety means I don't speak up in a group because I I tell myself people won't want to hear what I have to say. Well, you can talk back to that kind of thing. In other words, there are specific steps people can take to get better. But I th- I, I believe that self confidence should flow from what your strengths really are. Uh, rather than being some aura of I'm just good at everything, because nobody's good at everything. So know what your strengths are, know where your limits are. That makes a lot of sense. Do you believe that all of the competencies are learnable to some degree? Like anyone, wherever they come in, whenever they do their assessment, you can learn these things if you want to. Well, let's talk about that phrase, if you want to, because from my point of view, the first step you need to ask yourself or someone else is do you really care? Because it's all learned or learnable. The question is, are you going to put the effort into it? Are you going to stay with it? 
Are you going to practice the new way of doing it at every naturally occurring opportunity? That's how you get better at it. If the answer is no, I really don't care, then you can stop right there. So yes, it's, theoretically, it's all learned and learnable, but whether someone wants to do it and is willing to do it uh, and will make the attempt is quite individual. Okay, which brings me to a, a question I wanted to ask sure. in this category of self-management, because one of the competencies you touch on has to do with this achievement drive, mm. or we could call it perseverance, mm -hmm. or some people talk about it as grit. And, you know, I think you've done a, a tremendous job, uh, Dan, in your work of showing that, you know, starting 25 years ago, IQ is not necessarily the singular most important right. thing that you need to be successful. EQ, EQ might even be more important. It is more important, yes, than IQ. Is that true? First, let's start no, there. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I would say that. What would you say? I would say that IQ matters a lot in certain domains. Cognitive, you know, uh, uh, becoming good at software writing demands a lot of IQ, cognitive ability. Uh, doing well in school is correlated very highly with IQ. I would say that in life, once you get into the working world, for example, if you're an engineer. You're working with a team of engineers, and they all have the same background you do. They're about as smart as you are. So IQ fades as a uh, discriminator between the stars and the average. That's where emotional intelligence emerges. Once you're in the workplace, once you have an MBA, once you have your degree, uh, and you get a job commiserate with it, now you're competing with a pool of people that have the same abilities as you on the IQ side. But whether they have the uh, motivation that you have, whether they have the self-discipline, the self-management skills you have, whether they have the empathy, whether they're socially skilled, that's where the playing field uh, really differs among people. And that's where you see stars emerge. So I think that's the sense in which emotional intelligence is more important than IQ. That, that's clarifying. It's good. You're so good at making these distinctions, Dan. <laughs> And being very precise, I really, you know, and bringing out the nuance, I really appreciate it. I feel like you're increasing my IQ as we're talking. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. And where I was driving, though, is this quality of drive. You know, some people talk about it as if it, you know, they use the word grit sure. or yeah. perseverance. Right. And I've heard people say, look, you know, in terms of the people who are really successful in business, mm. IQ, sure. But this aspect of EQ, this yeah. particular competency, mm -hmm. which is, you know, when you fall down, you get back up. You will not stop. Strong will. There's a lot of words for it, but that that's the singular most important quality. And I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that's also just kind of like a pop psychology over-exaggeration of perseverance? I think it's, Tammy, I think it's true to a degree. Uh, I think uh, I, I knew a guy in college uh, who had perfect scores on his SATs and on three, four or five advanced placement courses. He was like really smart IQ, totally unmotivated, didn't get to class, never finished his assignments, uh, and it took him eight years to get a four-year college degree. So you could say that guy had very high IQ and very low motivation. He was not goal-focused. People who are very goal-focused will outdo others of equal IQ because they work harder. And I, I, it's true in school, and I think it's basically true in life. 
So when, when you're working toward your individual goals, that ability, the grit, as you said, it's sometimes called, the ability to stay at it even despite setbacks and obstacles is invaluable. However, however, when you become a leader, there is a certain pathology linked to that. And the pathology is you will drive people, for example, for quarterly targets and not care how you're driving them and what the human cost is, what it does to their morale, the fact it's stressing them out. They're becoming emotionally exhausted. They hate your guts. You don't care. You just want them to achieve the goal. And, you know, after the 2008-2009 uh, a big recession, this kind of leadership was heavily rewarded. People with this quality were heavily promoted. And then later companies realized, oh my God, they're hollowing us out because our best people are leaving uh, because they're being driven too hard. So I think you need to balance, for example, goal orientation with empathy. If you don't have empathy, if you don't tune in with concern, uh, here I, I need to say there's three kinds of empathy. Cognitive empathy, where you know how people think, you can communicate well. Emotional empathy, you know how they feel. Those are great, but you can use them to manipulate people. The third kind of empathy is caring about them, concern. And that's the kind of empathy that uh, a leader with uh, you know, really high goal motivation needs to balance it all out. How did you come up with these three categories of empathy? I've never heard that before. Oh, I uh, based it on research. Jean Dessetti at the University of Chicago showed that each of these three kinds of empathy are based on different neural circuitry. So the uh, what's called technically empathic concern, the caring about people, uh, is based in the same circuitry that we share with mammals. It's, a, it's the caretaking circuitry. It's a parent's love for a child. It's that kind of concern. And it's, the, it's actually what you want in your partner. It's what you want in your mom and your dad. It's what you want in your friends. It's what you want in your boss. That kind of mm -hmm. empathy. Okay. And then the last domain that you have in your map is relationship management. And there's a lot you include in this relationship management category, including conflict management teamwork and collaboration. And I wanted to talk to you some about that because, mm -hmm. again, this is from some of the work with the inaugural class of the Inner MBA, but also in my own experience with our 13-person leadership team, it sounds true. It seems that this ability for people to manage conflict and have what I would call brave conversations, difficult conversations, mm -hmm. To be able to be direct about the difficulties they're experiencing in a skillful way is really hard and really critical. And I'm curious to know what are the kind of building blocks that give people the ability to say, you know, I need to talk to you about something and handle it in a really skillful way. Yeah. So now I turn to the work on teams and emotional intelligence of my colleague Vanessa. Druscat at University of New Hampshire. She's shown uh, very strongly that high performing teams, no matter what metric you use for the team, have a collective emotional intelligence, which is uh, determined by the norms they set for interacting. 
And one of the key ones, Google found this out, for example, when they looked at their top performing teams, is a sense of psychological safety. It's okay to bring that up here. It's not okay in many, many groups to bring up the thing that no one wants to mention. But if you have a high performing team, it's going to be okay to bring up just about anything, particularly something that people disagree about but aren't talking about. If you let it simmer, it might explode or it's gonna throw things off in one way or another. This is why it's really helpful to bring uh, out and, and work out whatever people disagree on and to make time for that and to make it okay for that uh, and to have that as a norm of a team. She finds that's one of the norms of high-performing teams, being able to bring up uncomfortable topics. So well, that's clearly a big part if the organization has said, this is what we value, we're going to establish this as a norm, we're going to support it, we'll give you coaches to help you develop these skills. But what's needed in the individual to have the, I don't know if you want to call it confidence, the, the yeah. lack of fear, like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be brave in this situation. Yeah, I think it is this feeling of safety and that it is valued. That, that in, in other words, people will appreciate it even if it's uncomfortable. That uh, the, the people I am with on this team know that it's helpful to the team and to the team reaching its goal to work stuff like this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 that's another norm. Okay, and now just for the fun of it, I would love for you to tell me a story of a very highly emotionally intelligent leader. You could even make it up. It doesn't even have to be a real person you've met, but like, oh, I watched this person. I interviewed this person. And I can tell you, this is how I know that they're a really emotionally intelligent leader. I'll tell you about Govan Brown. Govan Brown was a bus driver in New York City. He drove a bus up Madison Avenue. Govan Brown, um, I once got on his bus. It was a very hot August day, very humid. And I was feeling a little irritable, like many people in New York City on a day like that. And when I got on his bus, Govan looked at me and asked as though he really cared how has your day been going? And I was shocked because people in New York City usually don't, you know, have a direct human encounter like that with someone they've never seen before. And I, as I sat on the bus, I realized he's carrying on a conversation with everyone on that bus. And people would get off the bus and he would again say very warmly, I hope your day turns out to be a wonderful day for you. I didn't know his name was Govan Brown. I found that out in his obituary in the New York Times years later uh, because they said he was the only driver of a bus in New York City who, when he retired, they held a party for because he had so many fans. People would wait to get on Govan Brown's bus. Govan was a pastor of a black church on Long Island, and he saw everyone on his bus as part of his flock. He was tending to his flock. I, I feel that uh, you know, Govan Brown, whose name I learned years later, uh, was exhibiting high emotional intelligence to everyone on the bus by connecting with them and by 
helping people get into an even better state than when they got on the bus. That's a beautiful story. It's so inspiring to everyone in whatever position they're in in life, whatever their job, career, whatever. Exactly. It doesn't matter what you do. It's how you do it that determines whether you really connect, whether you really help people, whether you're emotionally intelligent. Let me ask you a personal question, Dan, if that's okay. Let's get personal for a moment. So I know that your own spiritual journey, Mm -hmm. your own path Mm -hmm. as a practitioner, meditation practitioner, is really important to you. Mm. And I'm curious to know how your personal spiritual journey Mm. and the work you do as a science writer, the writing about emotional intelligence Mm. in particular, how it comes together for you. Are you sort of incognito doing this work, educating people about emotional Mm. intelligence, but really bringing the Buddha Dharma, the teachings Mm. of core teachings of Buddhism encoded in that work, or how do you see it? I think it's osmotic. I don't think it's under the radar or intentional. I think that uh, the way I look at the world, uh, my worldview is probably deeply influenced by my spiritual practices. Uh, But when I looked, when I developed the emotional intelligence model, uh, as far as I was consciously aware of, I was looking at the scientific research and seeing that it fell into these categories of self-awareness, self-management, empathy, social skill. And uh, then when I look back, I realized, well, that maps very nicely on, for example, self-awareness. Every spiritual discipline encourages it. Know thyself, as the Greeks said. Um, Self-discipline or self-management, that's also part of every spiritual path. Empathy, caring about other people, you know, whether you call it charity or compassion, uh, it's there in universally in spiritual paths and acting uh, in a positive, skillful way with other people is also part of it. So I would say that um, there's definitely a relationship, whether it's causal, I don't know. I think it may spring from the fact that spiritual paths to some extent were culture's ways of managing our uh, unruly central nervous system. There are ways to help us help ourselves. And psychology and neuroscience is the latest iteration of that. But it goes way, way back in human history and often takes the form of the spiritual practices that we have today. Now, one of the things that's been really interesting to me in this conversation is how you've based so much of your work on what the science has presented. Mm. Like when I asked you about where you came up with your model for empathy, you said Mm. it emerged from the science. And of course, in the last three decades, we've learned so much since fMRIs were introduced. And we've learned things that we didn't know 100 years ago. So I'm curious to know, is there anything that we haven't yet touched on in this conversation (laughs) that came forward that's important from the science itself Mm. that now showed us something really critical about how we work with emotions. Because look, we saw it, it's right here in the science. One thing we didn't touch on, uh, which thank you for the opportunity, uh, is the work that Richie Davidson did with advanced yogis. Because uh, meditation paths have aspirationally a transformation of being. That's the altered traits we were talking about earlier. 
And Richie flew um, yogis over from Nepal and India one by one, some from a retreat center in France, uh, and looked at their brains. And he found that they were, in fact, functionally different from most brains. And one of the important ways they differed was in terms of emotional life. Uh, you ta we talked earlier, we touched on having equanimity despite uh, very strong intrusive emotions. One of the things he did was uh, compare yogis to ordinary people with a kind of diabolical instrument which measures the, pain, the heat threshold that is extremely painful for you the most painful you can endure without causing a blister. And uh, he used that with the yogis and he used it with ordinary people. With ordinary normal folks like you and me, he uh, would put this, someone in the lab would put it on a person's skin and give them a taste of the pain, which is very intense. And then they'd be told uh, in 10 seconds, you know, in 30 seconds or something like that, you're gonna get that for 10 seconds. And what he found was that the emotional centers that register pain, when we feel pain, there are two kinds of brain circuitry involved. There's the raw perception of the sensation of pain, and then there's your emotional reaction to that perception. And it's the emotional reaction that really upsets us. It's like, oh my God, I can't stand that, in fear and everything. And when, uh, People ordinarily are told in X seconds, you're gonna feel that for 10 seconds. The emotional centers for feeling pain light up as though they were feeling the pain. And then it lasts, after the pain stops, lasts for 30 more seconds or more. This is what the fMRI showed. But with the yogis, it never lit up. They only had, they, they were flat, no, physiological response nor any emotional response to hearing that they're going to get that pain for 10 seconds. During the 10 seconds, they had the physiological response, but not the emotional response. And afterward, flat again, immediately afterward, as soon as it stopped. What that says is that they have a kind of an unflappable equanimity uh, when it comes to upsetting emotions. And it's a trait that is very different from the way you and I and most everyone we know react to life. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think, I want to get into that machine and have the electrodes put on my forehead and see how I do? Have you had that no. thought, Dan, and have you done it? I, I think it'd be a complete waste of time, frankly. So no, I never did. <laughs> I don't think I'm anywhere near that. All right. I know you're working on a new podcast. You've launched a new podcast Thanks. called First Person Plural. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. So th this is a, a project that really delights me because, you know, if I get an idea and I write a book about it, like Emotional Intelligence, it takes me about a year and a half to write the book and then maybe another year or more till it's published. It takes a long time to share that idea. But on a podcast... Whatever interests me, I can explore with someone in some depth and get it out right away, like you're doing, Tammy, with your podcast. And so um, First Person Plural is the name of it. I'm doing it with my son, Hanuman, who has that company, Keystep, one word, keystepmedia.com. Uh, and it allows me to explore aspects of emotional intelligence and quite beyond. I have 
some coming up on on uh, well-being, the science of well-being, the practicalities of being well. What, do, what does it take? What's the formula? Uh, I did a delightful podcast with a woman named Lori Santos who taught that course at Yale on happiness that was the most popular course ever. What, what does happiness really take? Uh, one on um, teaching kids how to be emotionally intelligent. It's called in school programs, SEL. So I'm, doing, I'm exploring many, many different aspects uh, of things related to emotional intelligence that intrigue me. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. So thanks for bringing it up. That's good. Yeah, podcast to podcast. Here we are. Now, one final question. When you and I spoke, when you were contributing the live question and answer session as part of our inner MBA program, you mentioned that you're doing some new work and some new writing on applying emotional intelligence at the organizational level, mm. what it takes yeah. for organizations themselves mm-hmm to embody emotional intelligence. And I think that's such an interesting topic. And I'd love as we come to a conclusion here, if you could just share a little bit about what you're looking at in that topic. I'm actually writing an article for the Harvard Business Review on that very thing, what what an emotionally intelligent organization looks like uh, and what it takes. In short, it turns out that it takes leaders who model it, who value it, who show that it matters to them and in in the organization. Uh, You want that model to ripple throughout because that becomes a value or a norm of the organization. And then you need a a human resources department that applies it in who they hire, how they onboard people, uh, how they manage performance, how they promote people. You you want these so-called soft skills to be as important as hard skills. And promotion and training and development because it's learned and learnable. So you want people to be given opportunities at every level uh, to hone their skill set in it. And if you put that together, you find that's the kind of the uh, skeletal structure and nervous system of an emotionally intelligent organization. May we create such organizations and emotionally intelligent humans uh, operating in them and leading in them. Dan, very good. Thank you so much for being here with us on Insights in the Edge. It's great to see you. Great to deepen our friendship. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tammy, it is always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks again. I've been speaking with Dan Goleman. We're celebrating the 25th anniversary edition of the publication of Emotional Intelligence a book with more than 5 million copies in print worldwide. Dan Goleman is also one of the featured teachers in Sounds True's Inner MBA nine-month program. It's a program that we've created in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and a division of NYU called Mindful NYU that certifies participants when they graduate. And you can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. 
Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world.